Hello and welcome to The Librarian is in the New York Public Library's podcast about books, culture, and what to read next. She's Crystal. And I'm Frank. No, wait. <laughs> Frankly, I'm Frank. Can I be frank with you? You today? can. Can I? You sure Literally. can. I like that frank means honest and free. Mm-hmm. I wish I could be frank. <laughs> isn't, that ever, isn't that also a hot dog? Next. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. It's also something French. And money, right? Like a franc, isn't that money? It is. It's lots of things. Yeah. Crystal, crystal is a lot of things. It's a rock. Yes, it's a it's a mineral. It has healing powers. I would hope so, it's right? Clear. Mm-hmm. It's fine dinnerware. <laughs> Very fine, of course. <laughs> Breakable. Beautiful, rare. Mm, well, rare. Okay. I mean, crystal isn't technically, you know, Walmart, is it? I mean, crystal, the term, I don't mean, I'm not disparaging anything. Um, it's, I, I guess I would say it was a high-end thing, crystal. Yeah, I can see that. Yes. So high-end. That's me, to a T. But I think um, we use crystal to could be very different price points. <laughs> Just a, a term to describe dinnerware or something, glassware. Speaking of price points, um, I'm looking at your very beautiful background wow. at Jefferson Market. This is the May West room, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us about it? It is so lovely. You're so impressed. Well, it's. I am very. I guess I could send a picture we could put on the blog. It's just something I was contemplating over the pandemic and shutdown and renovation and endless journey towards reopening. A little room we have for about 15 people the community can use. We use it for discussions, things like that. And I just wanted to make it something special, but something like almost like old school. Mm-hmm. It has like a damask wallpaper I got and an old beautiful gold mirror that someone from the public donated that's very ornate. And that's some gold frames and artwork and wood furniture. I've refinished the tables in here myself. I got gotten very handy in my old age or handier, I should say. I actually have to say I'm like turning into my parents because my mother was an interior designer. My father was actually a character. And now it's like all I'm obsessed with doing is like fixing things and decorating and designing spaces. It's like, when did I, I'm actually like becoming them. And maybe I never felt like any interest in their careers. But the more I get older, the more I, I'm returning to them. But no, so, your mom. Was an I didn't know your mom was an interior designer. Yeah, this makes sense. Really proud of it. I know. I wish you were around to see all the stuff that I'm doing. I think about that sometimes. But um, but I want the community to obviously to like today after this, there's a group from the community meeting at one, and then another group meeting tonight at six, and then. A colleague of mine has a book discussion in here. So there's, I want a lot of people to use it and I want them to come in and think, wow, what a nice space. I can put an old school sort of classic haunted mansion space, <laughs> surprising space in the library and give people a little bit of pleasure. And I, I bought all these lamps over the holiday break 
Mm-hmm. I see one of them that's on behind yeah, you. Yeah, I love it. I think it's there's such a like nice atmosphere that is coming through even just from a video screen. So I can't yeah. imagine what's like. Well, I there. really appreciate that. I really do. Um, you know, I love gold. I do too. I'm sort of obsessed. Um, and there's one picture up there behind me. This one that has oh, a yeah. over, which is just a different spot of color, and it's a little hidden thing. But I love organizing the art, and I picked a Caravaggio, which is the Cupid there, and then there's a, a new artist um, with his painting there, and I don't know, it's, a, it's just cute little, there's a cute painting over there, I can't show you, but it's adorable. It's just beautiful. So it's the goal to have some of the artwork, like the newer artwork, rotate in and out, so it kind of changes. See, that's the thing I realized when we were talking before we went on air, is that when you were talking about molding and I said, oh, don't start me because I am all, like I've said this before, always under construction, like this, it, the room will morph. Like we will, I will find art that will inspire me. I'll want it here. I'll find pieces that I'm like, oh, that has to go in the May West room and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's always an evolution, making it better and better and more interesting and surprising. And mm-hmm. I love that we can offer this to the public for free. Like the community can say, I need to have a meeting. Can I meet? In this room it's like yes kids we had um a whole bunch of students from the new school studying here in oh, and, stuff. and i actually oh that's such a cute story i came in i had to interfere at one point because we were hanging that mirror actually and mm-hmm. the only time i had a facilities guy to help me do it because i cannot do that alone it was organic yeah. and there were like 20 kids in here from the new school and they were having their meeting about their project and i was like i'm sorry we're just gonna put this here quickly and leave. And they were, went on with their conversation. And finally, I just said, turned to them and said, can I interrupt? What do you think, the mirror here or here? And then they were all weighing in on where the mirror should go. And I love that because they suddenly got very interested and they had opinions and, and I incorporated and I wanted to, but then I realized later how nice to sort of involve the public with how we do it too. And it was just very sweet and very satisfying to me when people are interested in in what I'm doing or what we're doing here at the library. And I love that you kind of solicited their feedback because then when you kind of take that into account, then that's a way for them to have ownership of the space too, because their Mm -hmm. suggestions are like shaping this place that they're in. So I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fun. I love that too. I love that because there's always something you haven't thought of. You think you know everything. And then someone says, why don't you put that lamp there? And I'm like, Oh, I didn't even see that. You know, so mm-hmm. I love playing around with that. So I hope I look forward to many different groups using the space and enjoying it. Thanks for bringing that up. I did not expect you to do that. So that's culture. <laughs> we got culture. Oh, the culture part. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I never did tell you the book I was reading the last time. Oh, well, it was a guess. You said it was eight hundred pages, and I had a question. And I meant to do research afterwards, but I completely forgot. Victorian era. Victorian era. 1865. I think the only book that I remember came into my head is definitely not correct. It was like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Just because that was the only book I can remember that had like a question. It's a, first of all, it's a play. It's so tiny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was written in the 50s or early. I know. <laughs> it was the first thing that had like a question. But it has nothing to do with Victorian literature. Neither does Virginia Woolf. But it has a question. I, I don't know if I would have known this, but um, it was uh, it's Anthony Trollope. 
Oh. Which is an interesting last name. But, you know, Anthony Trollope was a, a what's the word? Co- like cohort of Dickens. Mm-hmm. British Victorian author. They were born practically the same year. And that book is Can You Forgive Her? Oh, okay. Title of this book. So that's what I that's what I was reading and have been reading and still have yet to finish. It's 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 uh it's eight hundred pages, which is fine. And it was just uh for like the literally the first five hundred pages, I wasn't sure what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really I'm at like six hundred down. It sort of suddenly kicked in. Mm-hmm. Which is a whole conversation unto itself is about how we read, what, why we stay with a book, why we don't. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast that I had heard that he, like many of those authors, they wrote serially and that their each chapter was like a weekly in a magazine or something. And then I think it was the volume one was released as a book and then he wrote more serial installations for magazines then the volume two is released as another book and now they put together and that's, that's the 800 pages so it's like oh he's written he's paid by the word and he wrote serially so there wasn't an over see we talked about this that's why i don't like to get into series like tv series either i want like an overarching vision that's just that's put forward by the author or creator and said here's my vision it's its own little world its own world rather than here's season one. And since it was so hot, I'm going to do season two too. But even though that wasn't part of the original vision, it's just an analysis of how we perceive art and, and how we, the creation of it. And it's a little pretentious of me to be like, I want the, you know, I want, I want it this way, you know? And so I feel like I didn't trust him because it's very, it is very verbose. Like he can spend, which can be very pleasurable, a page starting off saying, you know, Alice was confused by her choices. And then by the end of the page, it's Alice was confused by her choices because she, he goes through the whole page just to say the same thing in different ways. And you realize that's where I was like, he's being paid by the word. So, you know, I can't trust him. Mm-hmm. So I had all those trust issues, which, you know, it's all your own issues that you have in life, not just in reading. And so by 500, page 500, I suddenly got into it. Like I, I accepted him from sheer endurance and there's just the pleasure of enduring as well like which is another issue of mine enduring something and keeping going with it mm-hmm. and now i'm sort of excited and it is very plot driven um which is technically books like i say i don't enjoy as much as like psychological depth and just and you know existential concern and emotional tragedy and um it's like when you really, when you realize it, there's like very little, it's in London, but like there's very little about the setting. Like he doesn't describe like your room you're in or, you know, there's books that go on and on about the furniture and the wall cover, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he doesn't do that. It's very much like plot driven and also uh, social satire and politics, like power and how power between men and women, power between relationships, power and politics very much interested in that so it's almost like a play in that you have a lot of dialogue between characters in a very cursory setting that you basically know where you are you know if they're rich you know if they're not rich you know if they're in a lawyer's office or a parlor but that's how it's presented so the more i thought about it the more i realized it's sort of like that that trope 
I don't know if you're familiar, like it's a movie trope really about like, it's always three girls, mm-hmm. like following three girls, romantic um, journeys, like three coins in the fountain, the pleasure seekers, um, innumerable movies, that, like best of everything, like from the fifties and sixties, there's always how to marry a millionaire, three girls and three different kinds of girls and their romantic and professional, you know, trials. Mm-hmm. And sort of, I realized this has like three protagonistic women and, um, one is Alice, who's the can you forgive her woman who basically rejects two suitors in marriage. So she has her, those issues, those two men. And then um, Glenn Cora, who, who has married a rich man who's very not who she's not in love with and had rejected this handsome ne'er do well Burgo. Um, but she really loves him. So she has her two guys. And then the sort of comedy portion of the story is Mrs. Greenow, who's a very rich widow, who has two bumbling goofball suitors who she plays with, but she's more or less plays up her widowhood. And like, you know, I was always devoted to one man. She basically married the guy for money. He was twice her age. He died, left her a ton of money. And now she's got suitors to beat off with a stick basically. And that's, but that's the more comic one. And that's probably the least enjoyable in some ways. Some of the comedy, I got some of the guy comedy, like there are, the comedy revolves mostly about making fun of and satirizing blowhards. Like, you know, guys who are like interested in their wealth or <laughs> pretense, like societal pretense. Like even Mrs. Greenow, who's, you know, plays up the widow, but yet she wears very, stylish revealing widow clothes like it's he makes a point of saying like she was wearing her impeccable widow's weeds but yet it was tailored in such a way that showed off her body in a very provocative way and so she's he sort of satirizes people who are pretentious and i guess that's always pleasurable (laughs) Mm -hmm. then you follow these three stories throughout and you know i guess the for you know the hundreds of pages that pass you you are being part of the world building of Anthony Trollope in this book. And eventually you start, um, or I started getting really into it. But as with a lot of books written in the past, I'm always interested to see like how we've changed, how we've not changed, how we sort of repurpose concepts that we think are new now. Like, you know, how many times do people say like, well, it would back then it wouldn't have happened this way or wow, you would have been really blah, 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 you know. And it's you realize when you read a book from that period of time, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, there is interesting comments made in terms of, uh, at one point early in the book, Trollope talks about women and in, in, their looks as a magnet for harassment. He And he uses the word harassment. He's like, you know, their homage, their, their, the homage to their beauty can take the form of harassment often. And which is obviously not a new thing. Um, and then he says, hopefully these things will change and hopefully to women's advantage. And like sort of like almost like looking forward to a different era where the harassment issue is turned around and women have more of a control over at least calling it out. Um, and then so I'm just, oh, and there's even a line where he says that a character, a female character, was too wide awake to ever be in any man's power. 
And I thought it was an interesting term, wide awake, like woke. We, we, we use terms like being awake as being very much enlightened. And I thought it was interesting how you used that word. She was too wide awake to mm -hmm. partake of, of any kind of relationship where the man had more of the power than she, than she did. I mean, and that's all over the book in terms of power. Like women have a lot of power in this book in that society allowed, obviously, these women to inherit money, mm -hmm. money because and money totally equals power um, in this book for sure. Like, Mrs. Green now inherits more money than any other character has. Uh, Glencora, who marries the upright guy who she doesn't love and rejects the ne'er-do-well, has a lot of money through her family and mm -hmm. doesn't have as much, but the union of them is a good alliance because economically it brings together two power. Like he has a great name, she has a lot of money, blah, 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 you know that story. And Alice has a lot, has money too, not as much as the others, but enough to be independent. So she can sort of be like, she can do what she wants. Mm -hmm. And her father, she got the money from her dead mother. So went past her father, he has no control over that money. So women had, if they could get it, they couldn't necessarily maybe earn it. And that's another thing that's pointed out. Alice is ruminating about her own life because she basically rejects her first suitor um, because he's really, to be honest to her, boring. Like he's very upright, very handsome, very all that, but he doesn't have anything interesting. And she sort of goes towards another guy who is an interesting character, George Vavasor, who is a lot more volatile but he's interested in politics and she she wanted to be involved with him because she wanted to be involved in politics by proxy. Mm -hmm. So I was going to say at some point she says, Alice is thinking to herself, well, she knew that she couldn't go into politics as a woman. So they wouldn't let her. Um, but to be near it was very exciting. So Alice's like story and the can you forgive her is can you forgive her for actually not being able to make up her mind between these two suitors, not being able to sort of go where society wants you to, um, with it, which is with John Gray, the upright guy, mm -hmm. when she's sort of where the obviously to the outside world seems like the most appropriate match. Who cares if you're happy? Who cares if you're in love with them or not? That's a great match, and that's probably all that matters to some people. Mm -hmm. um, but George is a very interesting character. The the more volatile. Um, suitor in Alice's life. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, I guess it's personal, but reading is personal because at first I was curious of where Trollope was going to take this character because in a way he's presented, and of course this is sort of one of my things, he's like a Heathcliff kind of guy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he has that rough edge that's sort of like, he's not really the greatest guy, but you sort of think, but he's going to be passionate and real love's going to happen, you know. Yeah, Crystal's smiling very indulgently at me. Um, like he's, and this is another like boy, boy. Uh, he um, he's described as having a scar on his face, and he got the scar from being a kid, like a twelve-year-old, um, attacking an intruder who was trying to break into his sister's room to steal her jewels. He was only a young boy, and he kills the intruder as a kid, but he gets stabbed, cut in his face. Um, but as the book goes on, Trollope describes the scar as changing according to George's moods, like, and which get increasingly angry and, and volatile. And so the scar is always used as a, an example of um, 
his badness in a way, like it gets uglier and opens, and, you know, it, he describes it really vividly. And what's interesting to me about that is, is that now we might write about George and his story as a story of trauma to be overcome or like yeah. to heal from. Like Trollope doesn't say he got the scar from some cockamamie moment. He was a heroic, brave thing for the young boy to do. And now we would look at possibly George's resulting personality of being unsteady and angry and volatile as a result of trauma. So something to be sympathized with. And, yeah. and yet... Trollope doesn't really treat him that way. And I have a feeling he's going to come to a very classic villain end because he really is acceleratingly more villainous, even though I'm sort of holding on to this sort of like, George just needs love. <laughs> just needs love. Because uh, like the scar thing was this, was how we would never also be so obvious now in telling of a story by giving a villain a scar. Yeah. Like a you know, the trope, the stereotype. The ableism of it, yeah. You're you know what I mean? So it's, I guess, this, you know, stereotypes come from somewhere. Um, but like having the badness manifest on his face. Because he's also described as being good looking, even though as the book goes on, he's described as being uglier and uglier. Mm. But to, of himself, he's ugly, which is also attractive because he's self-deprecating that way. Um, and the other guys are like, you know, more, blonde and handsome and this Jordan mm -hmm. dark and Heath Cliffian. And, um, so I just thought that was interesting how he might have a different story. We might give him more emotional depth. And he, he does see, he does by Trollope's own writing have emotional depth occasionally, mm -hmm. but it's, it, it always lands and ends in an area that we might not let it land and end now. Meaning, mm -hmm. There's one scene where his sister is arguing with him about an inheritance that he didn't get, George. And this is one of the reasons why he keeps getting angrier and angrier. Um, and he's just angry. And his sister's just like, George, you know, you don't even know how to be honest about things. And, and George smiles. And she goes, what do you mean? And what are you smiling for? And he goes, you just may be right. Like, maybe I can't be honest. And now a moment like that we would read as like the kicking off point of further emotional depth. Like, clearly the guy is like damaged and wounded and, and sort of like acting out. And we wouldn't let it end there. We would want that story to end either with tragedy or with redemption or some sort of healing. I'm making a lot of George because I was beguiled by him. But there's so many other characters that the stories you follow over this like, that I could go on. I, I mean, I had to pick something. Well, I pulled up the summary of the book, um, and I see that there's a character named Cheeseacre, who's yeah. a, which I just love that name. Well, that's funny you should <laughs> see that, because that's one of the goofball suitors of Mrs. Green. Uh, okay. Comedy, the comedy woman story. Oh, okay. He's like a rich farmer who's always talking about his pigs and manure and um and how great it is and he's that's how he courts mrs green now by talking about like i have 25 pounds of manure you know in the corner of my farmyard or whatever and you're supposed to be like oh oh oh, oh you know about that can i ask you a question not related to this book specifically but i think it was interesting what you said earlier about how we got to what page 500 and the act of enduring it like it clicked for you 
Um, is that just going to like naturally happen with any book where you just spend so much time with it that you just, it's almost like you're held captive in some way? Or are there books that you get to 500 and you're just like, it's still not any good and you have to abandon? Like, what's that relationship? It's very curious to me. I mean, I, I think I definitely, well, you, I think I've, I, I know I've said it, but whether it came across, I definitely, I, I realize I value probably mo maybe most of all, Mm -hmm. The act of reading, which I love, is mm -hmm. getting the author's rhythm, getting into a mm -hmm. place where I'm with the author, I, or I feel like I am. Oh, I see. I can apprehend what the author's saying much more clearly than I could before, maybe when it was difficult. You know, when you're reading and you realize you read a page, you're like, I don't know what I just read. Yeah. You have oh. to go back. And now that I've read 500 pages, I'm, I can sometimes be like, oh my God, I just read 20 pages. I had no idea that it went so fast, but I was completely in it. And to me, the most pleasurable thing is getting into the author's rhythm because there is a rhythm and there is a so-called style, but I think of it more of it as a rhythm. Um, like I even said before, he'll take a page and basically say the same thing. And I was resisting that early on. I was like, ah, self-indulgent, paid by the word, whatever. And now I can go with the rhythm, rhythm of it and enjoy the actual words which I love. But endurance is another um, value of mine. I feel like enduring is an important, like you can't give up on things. It's a thing like I can't give up on him with all my criticism. I very rarely have abandoned books. I can't even remember in years that I ever did abandon a book. Hmm. I, but I have, I'm sure, especially when I was younger. What you were saying about enduring, it was also making me think of, because this comes up in like my work and just conversations about like iterative processes, like this kind of repeated act situation. I don't know. I wonder if that was um, all related to how you feel with reading and everything. Anyways. Uh, well, this is a very interesting book. I mean, it's I mean it really is. I'm very grateful. And I'm doing it in my book discussion. And one of the book discussion members of the Jefferson Market book discussion suggested it. And I, you know, really go with the suggestions they have because it forces me to read authors I might not choose normally. And I am very glad I did. And I, I really can't wait to finish it. I'll maybe mention the end. I mean, I really didn't tell the story in terms of spoileries. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I'm looking at my notes from the... Oh, I told you that story. This is one final note um, about the trusting of Trollope and trusting authors. One thing that occurred to me is that what you know, I knew a little bit about the background of how they wrote down like the serial format and blah blah blah, which I'm, I'm you know much more romantic and want the author to be like we've written this book alone in a room for over six months and then presented the world the work of art that he or she created. Um, but I it did occur to me because there are great sketches of characters and great moments in the book that don't necessarily persist through. And I, it made me think at one point, like how much emotional control Trollope has over the work. Um, meaning there are certain writers, like I think Anita Bruckner's one. Mm -hmm. She has such control over the, the world of the novel that she introduces something here and 
pursues it here, completes it here, manifests it here, another aspect returns here. And you get the sense that she's created this entire world that is inter completely intentional. And sometimes I wonder with the serial format, like he sometimes got passionate about something, picked it up and then left it. Like there's a character introduced, Mrs. McLeod, early in the book that she's sort of like a very religious society driven character. And I, she's suddenly gone for like 400 pages. And, and there's also another chapter on a fox hunt that I was like, what? Where are, why are we running around with the foxes right now? Mm -hmm. And it was, um, I think Trollope was sort of obsessed with fox hunts. Uh, and it was entertaining, I guess. And it, to be honest, it, it counterpointed a lot for me with Anna Karenina, which I had read. I mean, I'm sure I've mentioned it. There's also a race, like a horse race, that's similar to the fox hunt in Anna Karenina. But Tolstoy and Anna Karenina, to me, had such an overarching emotional control of his character and message that the surging forward through the book was so pleasurable. Um, and Trollope, it's not as consistent, I'm thinking. I'm thinking how much real control, and how much control did he even want? He might have just been pleasing himself by writing these vivid moments that just don't go into a larger emotional whole you know but i guess what we're really talking about today is how we read and what we want from it and what we want from our authors to trust them and trust is a big deal for me spending time with the authors spending time with a you know anything you have to trust it i think i i really like how you described that um the stuff right before the trust about just kind of the activeness of like the author and the work or I, I don't know like it's it's really interesting because I don't often think about the author or the well I shouldn't say often but I think sometimes I'm just kind of drawn in by plots or characters but I'm not really seeing the person behind the words and I feel like you describe that so well and I guess that is maybe the benefit of a book that is very long you're spending a lot of time and you're seeing some things that look I'm not going to maybe see in a book that's much shorter right unless maybe a poetry book I, I can but for other things maybe not right um so that's really interesting to hear you talk about that and it makes me feel like I'm really missing out by having a hard limit at like no more than 400 pages but often that's why I don't even want to know anything about the author. I don't want to know about their lives. Mm -hmm. I want to get from their words what I think they're about. Mm -hmm. That's a relationship. Like I am conscious of reading a book and I'm, I realize I'm reading someone's mind's expression. Yeah. A person's mind. It's very intimate in a lot of ways. And definitely a book book in that I'm holding this object that no one else is reading but me and that author is very present so i can't not think about them sometimes do you feel like that feeling is um more present for authors that are like long dead right where it is this, i want to i want to call it like a time traveling moment but you know, there's something about like authors that are still alive that can speak on their work but right. these people have passed away and this is like a remnant of their minds that you can experience and maybe enter into and i think there's something very odd about that yeah yeah, say, yeah I, I love a good dead author <laughs> um when they're dead it's it's even more intimate in some ways because yeah. they're much more 
available to your imagination in some way mm -hmm. if you don't know a lot about them or yeah. not a lot of, is known about them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, can you forgive her? I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. And I only knew Trollope through like the way, was it the way we live now, which was like yeah. cool reading. And I had no idea there were so many other books. You wrote prolifically. And this book is the first uh, of his Palliser series. Palliser is the name of the guy who Glenn, Lady Glencora marries, the very upright guy, who actually is changing the book. He's very upright and boring, and, and she's like, I don't love you, and you don't love me. But he's doing his actions. He's He he rejected a very important government post to, to go away with his wife to fix their marriage, which is, in the book, for such an upright conventional so-called guy is a very romantic gesture. I think he's, this character is going to change. But anyway, it's the first of many novels on the Palliser family. And I remember as a kid, you wouldn't know, obviously, but in the 70s, a PBS broadcast, a BBC production of the Pallisers, which was a TV version of all these books that went on for a couple of years, many episodes, sort of like at the same time as Upstairs, Downstairs, which is like the precursor to Downton Abbey from the 70s. And I remember it very vaguely. I didn't watch it as a kid, but I remember it being on and, you know, that Victorian glamour and mm -hmm. you know, parlors and waltzes. And Oh, that's another thing. There's a great scene with uh, Glencora when she's dancing with Burgo, her handsome guy that she rejects to marry Palliser. And they're dancing a waltz. And the way it's described is that just people watching them waltz is enough for people to pretty much say they're having an affair. Mm -hmm. Like the waltz as a dance is so passionate or sweeping or elevated that it's made, it's made, it's not even joked about. It's just said, well, people watching only could assume that there was an affair happening because of that, just dancing like that. Mm -hmm. which, is, which is just a, another example of societal norms or assumptions that it, in this society where a lot of outward display of sexuality or emotion or, you know, passion is not really wanted when you're dancing is enough to sort of make people go, Oh dear, <laughs> must be getting it on. You know, like Age of Innocence, where like he touches the her wrist, and that's enough for to make her go, oh "My God, we're this is intimate." Mm -hmm. Very interesting the way we try to manifest our animal passion, baby. Wow, always there. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like, <Wow>. baby. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna talk about two books because talking with you always like brings up another book to me anyways um but the book that i like am reading have finished reading but i'm still kind of in it is this poetry book let's see can you hear this how heavy this is yeah it's by robin costa lewis and it's to the realization of perfect helplessness um 
this book is so fascinating because it's huge. Like, you know, if you read poetry, like I read poetry, they're usually very slim little volumes, right? And this book does something kind of different. And I actually read it first as an ebook. Um, and when you open the ebook, if you go on Libby or wherever, um, it'll instruct you to turn your phone or tablet background to black for parts one and three, and then turn it back to white for part two, right? And it mimics the actual structure of the book because the book is um, done in black pages, except for this very kind of narrow middle section, right? And I think it's very intentional too, because what the author has done or the poet is she essentially found this book of photographs, right? And I don't think it was very clear about like the origins of the photographs, right? But what she did was pair it with her words, her, her poems. And I think it's kind of fascinating because she essentially creates this kind of narrative through that pairing, right? Where if you take the photograph by themselves, what does that say? It says one thing. If you take the words by itself, it says like something else. But when you put it together, they start to inform each other in very interesting ways. Um, I want to see if I can find the picture early on too. And she also makes these, I think, very interesting decisions where, let me see if I can find it. I, of course, should have like marked it off, but did not. Ah, here we go. So this, this part says the body with the archive. And then I'm, I feel like I'm doing story time. So people can't really see this, but it's a picture of three sailors, three black men, right? And then the next page, it says, uh, long black, it says desire was our breastplate. And then it flips to another page and it's a close-up of the hands, right? And you see that some of the hands are kind of touching uh, one uh, person's hand is like on one man's thigh, another one's kind of close by, you see a wedding ring, um, and you see that kind of progression. And I think it's really interesting because by zooming in on certain aspects, it's like a narrative is being created that you wouldn't necessarily get just from looking at the picture by itself. Um, so I find that to be really fascinating. I think um, it's done in a very beautiful way, the way the, the image. It does really feel like a real story time. But you see a, a pairing of a photograph on this black background with the poetry and white uh, text. And I think that's also very intentional too, to make the default of the page black, right? And I think as you go through this, there's this kind of sense of, I, I wanna say like joy, liveliness, or just be able to see um, all these photographs of people just kind of going about their lives, right? That feel really kind of wonderful and powerful. Are they found photographs? Well, she found a collection under her, oh, let's see. I think under her grandmother's bed, right? I don't think I was very clear as to who the individual people's relationships were. Like that's not written out. There's not like captions for the people. So it's just a bunch of different people. There's baby pictures, right? There's pictures of like families together. Um, but there's this whole kind of archive of photographs that I think the story is unclear, Mm. But the author kind of crafts this story through right. poetry that I think is really wonderful and beautiful. So I kind of recommend I recommend this absolutely um, as 
something for people too who maybe like find poetry just by itself to be like a little bit hard to get to. I find this to be very like accessible. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just really lovely and um, something I really enjoy kind of just flipping through and um, mm. time with. What's, so I really the, that. what's the author's, sorry. Robin Costa Lewis, winner of the National Book Award. Oh, so I guess this, maybe this book won the National Book Awards. Oh, what is it, Costa? A C O S T E. I hope I'm pronouncing oh, that correctly. It's three names, and then Lewis, Space Lewis. Mm -hmm, to the realization of perfect helplessness. Now look at this photograph here of, is it like all like nuns, black nuns? Like such an interesting photograph. Um, mm. The other book I wanted to briefly talk about, because I just remembered, I, I read also a poet by Ada Calhoun. You had talked about that in a previous yeah. uh, recording. I liked it. What would you read? Uh, also a poet. Oh, you did. Oh, you did. Oh, um, I thought you meant, sorry. I thought you meant we read about, a, you read a poem. Oh, what made you pick it up? Oh, I was reading it for a committee. Oh, do you know that um, that he just died? I did. So I saw that in October, and then I looked up the publication, and this book was published in, when was it published? Like July of last year? Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was kind of like fascinating too. I had, I had all sorts of thoughts when I was reading it. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I wish I could talk to Frank about it. I mean, that was like really interesting. I had like a kind of mixed feelings about it too. Like there were parts of it. Do you remember that interview where Ada was talking to Maureen O'Hara? The sister, yeah. And was it the sister? I thought it was the daughter of Frank. Oh, maybe it was the sister. No, it's sister. Okay. Frank, and, yeah, he didn't have kids. Oh, okay, okay. That makes sense. Um, when I was reading the the transcript of that interview, I had moments where I was like, I kind of agree with Maureen. Like, why are you bringing like Frank O'Hara into this? Because this is not about Frank O'Hara. This is about you and your father, right? Yeah. And I had this like um, experience of frustration reading it, but I think it was. It felt intentional, right? So I can't like really knock the author for doing that where um, the parts that were about her and her father were just so powerful. They were so far in between. They almost felt like it was necessary to have all that other stuff because then you would see these other kinds of little reveals, right? The part where, um, you know, so much of the transcripts of her father's interviews were transcribed in a way that I felt like was not really conducive to my enjoyment of reading. Like who wants to read transcripts of interviews, right? And I was, throughout the book was really questioning why this format and at the very end, remember where it's a transcript of her father and her yeah. as a child. And I was like, that was so powerful. Powerful because I had to go through all of that like nonsense. Yeah. It. So it was such an interesting book. I was completely frustrated throughout, and yet like mm -hmm. found it to be really powerful. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, frustrating is is good because the the relationship is frustrating. Yes, that she has yes. her father and and wanting to find out about Frank O'Hara, her favorite poet and mm -hmm. contemporary of or. Oh, well, he's older, but like his father, her father knew Frank O'Hara. Mm -hmm. But that's a great point about um, the sister, Maureen O'Hara. Was it Maureen? I think Maureen, yeah. yeah. Um, 
she, her protection of her brother Frank O'Hara and not wanting to reveal a lot. And you're like, well, that's the legit point of view to take. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't agree with some of her reasonings because I think she also was like, said Calhoun was not equipped to analyze Frank O'Hara's poetry and all that kind of stuff. But I did understand. I'm like, well, you know, Frank O'Hara in this book is a prop. Like, it's a prop to talk about her relationship with her father. And I felt like it was almost something that she was hiding behind because yeah. to kind of face that relationship, a very complicated relationship, I think requires a kind of vulnerability. And I understood her decision making and using talking about O'Hara as a way of talking about her father and her own relationship. Um, it, was, it was a fascinating book and I feel like it would not have been on my radar as much if you hadn't like also talked about it. Um, well, you really bring to mind like what I also noted in Can You Forgive Her, which is like a social political, you know, examination of how we operate human beings. And you just sort of illustrated by the Ada Calhoun and the, and the sister of Frank O'Hara. It's like it's several times in the book, a character will think in Can You Forgive Her, think to themselves, wait, how do I want to proceed with this interaction so, I, so as to I can maximize my own victory or maximize the possibility of getting what I want? And yeah. it was so human that we, we all do this, even, you know, mm-hmm. we all do it. Um, we don't even maybe know we're doing it, but when we're interacting with someone, we're constantly shifting to sort of see how we can get what we want come out in the right place um in our relationships and the way you were describing the frustration of ada calhoun wanting to find out this stuff from frank o'hara's sister and the sister not wanting to give it they both are coming at it from their own sort of power that they to get what they want yeah it's a it's a it's a uh headbutt and then who's to say as you picked up who's in the right, like who's yeah. who's entitled to do what the other wants. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't always work that way. And that's an interesting thing as human beings that we do to sort of, I mean, George says in the book, you like, you know, he's, he paused wondering which direction he should go in to maximize his success. It's like blatant right there. Um, and how moral is that even? Anyway, well, cool. That's so cool. Ada Calhoun's almost a poet. Also a poet, not almost. Also, also. <laughs> yes. But anyways. Oh, no, and I was going to say the, um, I forgot to say, like, the we were talking about Trollope and the old authors and how, like, reading their books is like a remnant of, of themselves. I got that feeling from looking at the photographs. And, I'm uh, very intrigued by that book with the photographs and the poetry. Robin Cost Lewis. I want to Costa. Okay. Or Costa. I want to look it up um, because yeah, I you, check it out. you enjoyed flipping through it. We have it in the library, correct? We must. I, I'm sure we do. And again, I think the ebook was totally fine reading it, but I also went back to the physical book because I think there's a certain kind of presence mm-hmm. of seeing it all together, like laid out side by side, which I just couldn't. I mean, like, I read tons of things through ebook, but I just could not get that sense from the ebook as I got from the book itself. So it's, it's really yeah. fascinating and wonderful. That's what intrigues me. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to look it up. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Librarian is In. It was a pleasure, as always. Crystal and I are going to go take a nap.
Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.